Good morning. This is Maggie Jones and Natural Wonders. Two more stories from Frances Hammerstrom from her book, Is She Coming To? Memoirs of a Lady Hunter. Fran and her husband, Frederick, were born in the first decade of the 20th century and became premier biologists here in Wisconsin. They were graduate students studying under Aldo Leopold. He directed them on their path to the central sands to study prairie chickens and sharp-tailed grouse, which were declining as fire was being suppressed and agriculture was advancing. Fran is well known for her separate, innovative research work on birds of prey, and she was one of the first biologists to sound the alarm about the lethal effects of DDT. Today, the chapter Birds on His Shoulders takes us to the Snake River in Idaho during World War II, and then I'll read the last chapter in the book, Biography of a Dancing Ground. This chapter, if I had to choose only one of her writings to take to a desert island, this would be it. And now, Birds on His Shoulders. Frederick's first assignment during World War II was at Mountain Home Air Force Base in Idaho, where wives were not permitted to accompany their husbands. Frederick was unaware of this. A bulletin listing forbidden bases seemed not to list Mountain Home because another bulletin had been tacked over the bottom line hiding the name of the very base he was on. Just the little matter of having one bulletin tacked to hide part of another enabled me to join my man, and furthermore, to enjoy the best duck shooting I was ever to discover. We found a two-room shanty right by the Snake River where the children and I could live and Frederick could spend the nights and weekends with me in secret. Gas was rationed and so was meat. As Frederick wasn't supposed to be eating over at my shanty, but at the bachelor officer's quarters instead, it was up to us to shoot our meat and keep the secret that we were really living together off base. Our shanty was so near the Snake River that the ducks moved up and down stream right in front of our door. If the shanty had been about 40 yards closer to the river, it could have served as a blind. One afternoon, Frederick said, Why don't you go to Boise and buy a refrigerator? So he hooked up our trailer. The next morning, I set forth for Boise with the children. We came back with a duck boat instead. It was a so-called tin boat, just a rowboat, but it was even painted a nice green. I wasn't sure how Frederick would take to this unexpected use of the refrigerator money. On the way home, I picked up an old sheep herder, and he put my mind at rest. You don't need no refrigeration round here. Just hang your ducks up in the nighttime and roll them up in your bedroll during the day. I hunted every morning, taking three-year-old Alan with me. Elva was left sleeping in her crib at home. I rode through the backwaters near our house, and I picked my shots with great care. Shells were rationed, and my rule was, two misses and no more shooting for the day. This rule had a salubrious effect on my marksmanship, which I thought rather good until I started counting. Alan pointed at ducks, and his first sentence was, Don't shoot! It's a coot!
Every morning we hunted upstream against the current, tied up the boat, and walked home with our booty. Each afternoon, when Frederick came home from the base, he changed clothes, hurried to the moored boat, and got his shooting coming downstream with the current. There are wives who buy their husbands neckties and shaving lotions. My daily present of the downstream hunt was one of the nicest presents I ever thought up for my man. I got the morning flight, he got the evening flight, and our supply of ducks mounted. On weekends, we sometimes got to hunt together. Each evening, I hung all the ducks in an open shed, and early each morning before the day's hot sun beat down, the ducks were rolled in our bedding until nightfall when we needed the bedding ourselves. We had almost nothing to do with the Army. Frederick, commissioned directly, became a second lieutenant, aviation physiologist, in one day. Not knowing whom to salute nor how to salute, though he had once been taught the Boy Scout salute. I was even more ignorant. Thus it came as a surprise to us that the Army, perhaps unofficially, issues orders, orders for compliance, and orders for strict compliance. Of course, it was always a little edgy for Frederick to have his family with him against the rules. His immediate commanding officer, Ollie Strauss, knew where I was, but I kept a low profile, so it was a shock to receive a formal invitation to attend a tea for the officers' wives. Wives aren't supposed to be anywhere nearby, and here was a tea to be held right in the officers' club. I looked at the invitation with amusement and tossed it into the wastebasket, almost forgetting to tell Frederick about the invitation, which I was certainly going to ignore. Frederick, who approved of my attitude toward hen parties, mentioned the matter in passing to Ollie Strauss, who gulped, She must accept. There's no way around it. Frederick said, It's a free country, and the chances of getting Fran to go to a lady's tea on base are nil, absolutely nil. If I try to explain the importance of this matter to Fran, she will laugh in my face. The duck boat sprung leaks from time to time. I fixed these by soldering. My mended leaks stayed mended, and I took pride in my work. I was looking forward to showing Frederick some of my men's when he got home. To my amazement, his car was followed by a staff car, Ollie Strauss in full uniform, chief of the 6th Altitude Training Unit, emerged from the staff car. He came right to the point. Fran, you are going to that tea. An invitation from the colonel's wife is an order from the colonel. But, Ollie, it's an order for compliance. So I was going to a tea party in duck season. We invited Ollie in for a drink. He looked around our two-room shanty with its unfinished walls and a window patched with cardboard. Quite the little dump you found yourselves. It didn't seem to me that he came out with that remark with what you might call warm approval. I prepared for that tea. I got out my town clothes and selected a dress, shoes, hat, and gloves. Then I arranged with Mrs. Crow, wife of a master sergeant, who probably wasn't supposed to have his family there, to look after the children. The tea was uneventful. We all took in each other's clothes, and nobody mentioned that none of us was supposed to be there. It was after the tea that was fun. 
the ladies all drifted into the bar. I got to talking with a perfectly charming old gentleman who bought me a drink. And then he found that I liked duck hunting, and he told me one story after another. That poor sweet man, how he wished he could hunt again. Of course I told him how good the shooting was at Grand View by the Bruno stage. I invited him to come hunting with us next Sunday. He thanked me in a most courtly manner and asked for our telephone number. No telephone? Just come if you can, I urged. He sighed. It would give me great pleasure, my dear. On the way home to our shanty on the snake, I told Frederick all about the sweet old man and how he longed to go hunting again and how maybe he was coming on Sunday. An old man, Frederick inquired. Yes, he had white hair and wrinkles. Rather heavy set? Yes, not fat, but certainly rather heavy set. Frederick was being oddly persistent. What was his rank? Oh, I don't know. He was sweet. What, croaked Frederick, were his insignia? I mean, just what was he wearing on his shoulders? Let me think back. It was birds. Fran, you have invited the base colonel to our shanty. Well, what are you going to do? What do you want me to do, polish the silver? Frederick was taking this all astonishingly hard. Darling, I was going to solder the duck boat some more, but I'll clean the silver too if you like. The colonel never got a look at our shanty. He might have sent me home. Fortunately, the colonel didn't show up. We had another visitor on Sunday, a plump, overdressed woman who came to make a call. She came in and cooed over Elva in her crib. Then she noticed a dead duck lying on the dining table. She cornered Alan. He was surprised to have this gurgling creature hovering about him in such a cute manner. She took his hand and led him to the table. What's that? she cooed. Donald Duck? Alan answered in one word, Teal. Alas, the dear old man with birds on his shoulders never got to meet Alan, nor to eat the teal. And that's the end of the chapter, Birds on His Shoulders. In the front of the book, where the ISBN number is, that page, it says, Biography of a Dancing Ground appeared originally in Frederick Hammerstrom, Francis Hammerstrom and Oswald E. Matson, Sharp Tales Into the Shadows, Madison, Wisconsin Conservation Department, 1952. I'll read that for you now. Biography of a Dancing Ground, the last chapter in this book. The charred stumps of the felled timber had ceased smoldering. Logging roads wound among the obliterated slashings. The country lay open, devastated, and bare, but the first weed growth was pushing up green shoots, the tiny beginning of immeasurable wealth to come. The first sharptails appeared in the autumn. No one knew where they came from, but the deep woods around the burn had not proven an insurmountable barrier. From some other open country a flock came in, winging its way over the treetops and alighting on the burn. The green shoots of smartweeds and ragweed had made good growth on the new ashes. By autumn, seeds were abundant and the sharptails stayed. Just before sunrise on a frosty morning, a group of sharptail cocks started gobbling and cooing near an oak stump. 
and the sounds increased in volume, as though each cock, by his gobbling, were urging the others on to gobble too. Suddenly, within the twinkling of an eye, one cock spread his wings, blew up his lavender air sacks, and started to dance. For the first time since the white man inhabited Wisconsin, a sharp tail was dancing on this particular piece of ground. His feathered legs buzzing like a mechanical toy and his feet beating a rapid tattoo, he danced and cooed. So still was the morning that the sound of his cooing resounded far over the open plain. As the sun rose, more cocks took up the dance, and so, in the open plain by the oak stump, a dancing ground was born. No longer did a pileated woodpecker drum on the old oak tree, nor flying squirrels glide in its shade. A new era in the ever-changing pattern of natural successions had begun, and the sharp-tailed grouse were among the first to take advantage of it. It was not till spring that the sharp-tails returned to dance on the spot by the oak stump. For sharp-tails, spring comes early. In February, weeks before the editor of the local paper was to print his news item about the first robin, the sharp-tailed cocks gathered on the spot by the oak stump and fought their neighbors for possession of a part of it. So far, no hen had appeared. Early mornings and evenings, the cocks gathered and fought and danced and cooed until each had his own territory. There was a vehemence to their cooing, not like the gentle-sounding dove. They danced as though possessed, and feathers lay upon the ground, torn out in fights, but still no hen had come. It was on a morning in April that a new intensity came upon the dance ground. It was still so early that the tails of the dancing cocks gleamed like will-o'-the-wisps, white in the half-light. Demurely, the first hen walked the dancing ground, if she were aware of the tumultuous dancing cocks around her, she concealed it admirably. She walked slowly, occasionally pausing to peck at a blade of grass or an herb leaf, perhaps the avian equivalent of a yawn. Mornings and sometimes in the evenings, the cocks came to dance, and as May approached more and more often, hens sought the dancing ground, and with each visit, the fervor of the dancing cocks increased. Gradually, one by one, an awareness seemed to come over the hens. They spread or flicked their wings in invitation as they walked amongst the dancing cocks, one and then others. Each, as she came to the point of readiness, was mounted. The nests in which they laid their eggs were mostly within a half a mile of the dancing ground, and some of the young cocks hatched from these first nests would try their first dancing steps not four months later. Year by year, the dance ground gained in numbers. Each spring, more cocks danced on the spot by the oak stump, and more and more dancing grounds became established over the plain. It got so that people who had settled near the big burn within the last year or two thought that there had always been sharp tails there, and lots of them, for they had never seen it when the woods were deep. They had only heard tell of the big woods. Now pin cherry and birches and aspen were growing up among the stumps, and here and there pines were coming in. 
Pin cherry, aspen, and birches give winter budding. The new brushland offered the sharptails all they needed, and they throve. Food was abundant. Sweet fern, buds, catkins, berries, grasshoppers, and other insects for the young birds. Heavy grass near the willows and aspen gave good nesting and rearing cover. Most of the plain was open with bare grassy spots for loafing and dancing. Abundance lasted for years and every spring on the dance ground by the oak stump. The cocks fought and danced and mated and fought again until the spring was over. Perhaps each spring they kept it up as long as there was the slightest hope that a hen might come. And then there were fewer sharp tails. Some dancing grounds disappeared entirely, and others that once resounded with the stamping feet of thirty cocks now had but two or three. A jack pine seedling grew by the old oak stump and cast its shadow over the dance ground in the late afternoons. Shadows are not for sharp tails, for they are birds of sunlight and brushland. The shadow was but a forerunner of what was to come. A blueberry picker dropped a lighted match. He spat casually but missed the small flame flickering in a grass tuft. His friend said, Let her go. The berries need a burnin'. The picker looked up at the hot sun three hours high, faced the dry south wind and kicked the dry ground with his boot. No, he said, stamping the small flame. She might get a roaring, no telling how far she'd burn. It was before the days of fire protection. Thus, with a few half-idle words, the future of the plain was settled for a generation to come. The plant succession was not to be turned back to open country once more. The forest was to grow, and the doom of the dancing ground by the oak stump and of others like it was sealed. Four cocks danced there the next spring, one hen demurely trod the dance ground at sunrise, two days running. She never came again, though the four cocks fought and danced and hooted till the lupin buds showed blue and summer was on its way. People noticed the difference. One said, I saw ten deer in my rye field the other night, and there's partridge out on the plain. The plain? It was no longer a plain. It was a young forest. A new and different wealth had come. Young trees and deer and partridges were a part of the new order, and snowshoes where the sprouts were thickest. Funny thing the way the sharp tails went, said the berry picker. Some thought the foxes got them, and some said it was them white owls. The berry picker said he didn't know and changed the subject to more familiar ground. He remarked, the berries have been scarce for years now. Seems like they need a burn or something to keep the crops a-coming. Blueberry crops and sharp tails are both on their way out. That spring one cock danced by the oak stump, picking a bare spot of sandy soil among the jack pines. He started early, long before the first robin was to arrive, and the sun lit up his purple air sacks and his feathery tracks left dancing patterns in the snow. He never fought, for there was no sparring partner. Later he kept the grass on the sandy soil stamped bare with his feet, dancing morning and night. No hen was to come, for the last hen was gone from the plain. He danced till his rump feathers were worn down to their shafts from the movement of his tail as he danced, 
and then when the lupin buds were full to bursting and showed blue, he danced no more. The music of the dance ground by the oak stump was stilled. And that's Biography of a Dancing Ground. Please look for other readings I've done on the WDRT.org website under the archived podcasts. This is Maggie Jones and Natural Wonders. Thank you so much for listening.